Hi, and welcome to this next episode of the Brexit and Beyond podcast. And to kick off the new academic year, I'm delighted to say that we have not one, but two special guests in the form of, on the one hand, Professor Matthew Goodwin, who's Professor of Politics and International Relations at the University of Kent. Hiya, Matt. Hiya. And Jonathan Portes, who's Professor of Economics and Public Policy at King's College in London. Hiya, Jonathan. Hi. Before we get into substance, as it were, I wanted to start off with social media, because you're both known for many things, and you're particularly, I think, known for having both of you very uh, well, large followings and strong presences on Twitter, particularly. So to kick us off, is Twitter a help or a hindrance in what you try to do? And feel free, either of you, to go first. Um, okay, I'll jump in. I think it's, I think it's a bit of both. Uh, I, think, uh, you know, I think at the very beginning of Twitter, a lot of academics were very sceptical uh, of, of the platform and, and what it was about. I can remember joining... I think when I was still at Manchester more than 10 years ago and the sort of instinctive reaction at that point was one of skepticism. I think as we've, as we've gone on from that point and a lot of the research has come out showing, for example, that if you share papers and, and books on Twitter, they're more likely to be cited. There is clearly quite a vibrant intellectual community, uh, research community on Twitter, and you, know, you can see a lot of people using it as a way of navigating research questions and, and trying to you know, hunt down sources and, and just have a conversation. I think at the same time, much like the country around us, I think without question, Twitter's also become a very febrile, polarized, quite intense environment where as academics you know who feel as all citizens do I think quite strongly about the issues that have swept through British politics over the last decade I think you know the academic disputes that used to be restricted to papers and maybe conferences uh, are, now, are now finding their expression through through social media and sometimes in quite a direct and aggressive way um, so, so in my view, I think it's I think it's a combination. I still think on the whole, Twitter is positive, but um, but at times, you know, everybody has their off day. You can walk away thinking this is an incredibly depressing environment. <laughs> what do you reckon, Jonathan? Um, I mean, I agree uh, almost. I, I agree entirely with Matt, with perhaps a slightly different emphasis um, on the positives. Uh, it absolutely is a great way of, of increasing the visibility of, re of your research. Um, and communicating with other academics. I'd also add that it's, I think, great in terms of being able to communicate your research to interested non-academics and for them to actually have a, you know, it, it goes both ways. You are accountable on Twitter in a way which you are not in academia. And that doesn't mean to say, of course, you have to answer questions from everybody. But uh, I think there is some obligation to answer intelligent questions from people who actually genuinely um, either want to find out more or disagree with you or want to find out why you're taking a particular position and what the research um, that you um, either you're, you're responsible for or you're publicizing um, actually says. Um, and I think that's hugely positive for academia and research as a whole. On Matt's second point, can it be confrontational and, and can things which you know, is it a different way of interacting with other academics than uh, other conventionally? Well, yes, it is. Um, and yes, 
that can um, be, uh, you know, that can be very negative and, and sometimes even as Matt says, depressing sometimes. But I still think it's overwhelmingly positive. It means that bad research, um, the misuse of research, or bad the, um, the the can get gets called out much more quickly and exposed in a way which, frankly, it never has through the normal conventions of conferences and journals. Um, and despite that, that may be uncomfortable for some people, but I still think it's a good thing. Um, and I, you know, I, I may regret sometimes some of the language and tone that I use, but I do not regret um, engaging other academics who frankly publish bad research or say things on Twitter based on their research, um, which they simply cannot justify. I mean, a couple of things on tone, actually, maybe a positive and a negative. I suppose the positive is it forces us to talk about and explain and debate research in an accessible way. I mean, you can't really resort to jargon on Twitter when you're having those exchanges. And I, I wonder if you both felt the same thing. I just feel that the sort of the, the shield, as it sometimes is, of the academic vernacular is kind of stripped away and you have to talk things through in a clear and comprehensible way. But the negative is surely that we sometimes resort to a tone that is either perhaps unseemly or that we wouldn't use in person and the whole and, and things can get out of hand quite quickly. I think, you know, the new rule, if you like, that I that I've tried to stick to, and I haven't always managed to do it to do it, but I think we should try as a community to look at Twitter as we would a workshop in that we we should really not be saying things on social media that we wouldn't say to somebody in an academic workshop and i think if you if you apply that across the board i think it would be incredibly helpful and the reason i i do feel quite strongly about that having gone through more than my fair share of uh, social media um debates and, and disputes is that my source of concern anand is actually less about the tone between academics because you know we've always been notoriously combative you know go back to ajp taylor norman stone david butler you know throughout uh, you know the post war period you know the the number of disputes and debates over you know who should or should not get a chair and you know it's notorious right but but i think what's different now is that everybody else can see how the academic community functions behaves engages debates discusses and so on so that shield that i think you're right to mention the shield has dropped i think not only in terms of us being able to see other people's ideological priors in a in a more direct way than perhaps we would have through peer review conferences and so on but but also for members of the public for policymakers for journalists for governments you know the number of people over the last few years who have said to me for example wow you academics are really vicious to one another you know you're really aggressive and and i'm concerned about that and and i say that with my hands up as being somebody who's also you know as i say got gone into my fair share of debates because i think if we're not careful we will inevitably erode some of that public confidence and trust in in research simply because of what they're seeing daily on social media um, okay so let, let me let me try and politely um, disagree a bit with Matt on this again. I do not think that it, uh, um, you know, first of all, I, uh, Matt's rule that we should say the same things that we would in workshops or seminars, I think slightly misunderstands, not misunderstands, of course Matt knows what Twitter is. I think it is not re necessarily realistic or helpful 
given that that's not what Twitter is. Twitter is a dialogue, sometimes Socratic, sometimes questioning, sometimes friendly, sometimes combative, but it is a, it's a conversation in a way that workshops where someone is presenting their work um, uh, and, and expecting it to be criticized, and there's some obligation to take seriously the fact that people have put a fair amount of work into something and you're trying on the whole to be constructive. They're different media and one should use different things. That's the first point. And I guess the second point is that I don't think it's bad for members of the public to know how we feel or we act. We are human. Uh, I mean, I'll give an example just so Matt can react and say what, what, what he thinks, because it's one he knows, not, not of us, because I think that would be, be personal. But, you know, I tweeted a few months back about a chart that Eric, Professor Eric Kaufman at Birkbeck posted. And I said, this chart is meaningless, bad analysis, misleading data, appalling presentation, not even wrong. Eric Kaufman demonstrating his own confirmation bias here. It's a complex subject, but if you want a serious analysis, try this and a link to another paper. Now, I stand by that tweet. Uh, I think it made an important point. It was an accurate point, and indeed, Eric Kaufman deleted the chart and admitted that it was a, uh, that, that he'd got the statistics completely wrong on this. So, you know, there's no doubt about that I was right. But I don't think, it, you know, it is good for the public to see when somebody who is the professor of, uh, professor of politics at a respectable university posts the chart that purports to make a very important point about the nature of discrimination in our society, that this, you know, was not what, you know, that, that this, this was bad statistics, making a point that he was trying to make for, in my view, and I think most would agree, for his own ideological reasons. And I think it's important people should know that. And I don't apologize for being, you know, it, given the way Twitter is, this is not something where you wait and you write alternative paper showing where the other person is wrong. That's not how it works on Twitter. Matt, do you want to come back? Well, I mean, I don't want to delve into individual cases. Um, I mean, individual academics can sort of defend themselves. I, I suppose the, the reason that I, to go back to my point, the reason that I feel more concerned than I used to about public perception, I think firstly is looking at what's happened in the United States, where you've seen uh, public opinion around universities polarise in a way that we haven't yet seen in the UK, but we may be about to see that. Let's see what happens. And you've seen people move in very different directions according to how they they perceive universities are and much of that is wrapped up in this point about ideology and there is a widespread narrative not just confined to social media but but a view that universities are not the honest brokers the the institutions that protect and uphold viewpoint diversity in a way that they claim to be and i'm not making a judgment on that claim it's just it is a widespread narrative that is out there in the public realm and so how people perceive uh, academics on social media actually does become quite important um because if they see for example that you know many, much of the interrogation that that, and, and, you know, valid interrogation that John points to, you know, this sort of uh, scrutiny of research methods and data and analysis and so on, if they see that repeatedly being thrown in only one direction and not in another direction, that will become quite problematic. If they see it instead being applied across the board, if they see researchers in the academic community treating other academics who hold different views with respect, 
and recognizing those views as legitimate and they don't view academics as being publicly uh, quite abusive or aggressive towards those that deviate from ideological norms, then I think we're in a good place. But if people see instead, you know, all of those things actually, uh, if they believe that all of those things are happening, then I think over time, what we're going to find is that institutions and universities will end up being will end up being polarized in the way that they are in in the United States, which is why perhaps as a you know, as a community, would it be possible to get into a place where we do have some general informal principles that try to guide how we engage with one, with one another on social media? I suppose, Jonathan, what, what I'd take from that is, is, is there not a danger with a, with a certain sort of language that this becomes very punch and duty, this becomes personality rather than substance driven and, and that academic debates are seen as clashes of personality rather than clashes of method or analysis or anything like that? Is there, is there not a danger with that on Twitter? Um, absolutely. The, the role which I do try to stick to, uh, and I think on the whole mostly do, is not to make it about personalities. And I think you, you know, and, and, and I guess I would, I do think that's an important distinction. I think you can be quite punchy and direct, um, and indeed that is part of the point of Twitter as being punchy and direct. And one of the reasons I like Twitter is it forces you to compress things and yet, you know, get the analysis right. Um, if you stick to analysis, data, facts, and evidence, um, but not uh, talk about people, individuals, or personality. Uh, and I think that distinction is, uh, uh, is quite important. Um, on Matt's broader point, which is sort of, is, is there a risk of, of, of apparent ideological conformity and, and to, to get on to Brexit, as it were, I think that is a worry. Um, and I think particularly for, for people like you and, and, and me, who are partly funded by, or wholly funded, but in your case, by uh, um, the SRC to provide objective analysis about Brexit. There is a responsibility, which doesn't necessarily attach to other academics, let alone the general public, about not doing tit, not necessarily doing tit for tat uh, or quotas, but being, being objective and being seen to be objective. So, I think, for example, in my Brexit-related work, I do have some obligation when I see really crap economics that is presented by either side, by either pro or anti-Brexit forces, to call it out. Now, I think, on the whole, because of the nature of the economic debate on Brexit, where where the economic consensus and actually objective reality actually is, and also the nature of politics and, and the governments we've had, on the whole, there's been rather more pro-Brexit bullshit than anti-Brexit bullshit. But there certainly has been plenty of the latter, and I think I've tried to, to be clear and consistent about calling that out in much the same terms as I would call out the other stuff as well. I suppose building on that, I mean, a minute ago, Matt talked about people and their priors. Do you Would you accept the assertion, both of you, that you bring your politics to the table when you discuss evidence or would you deny that? Well, I, I, I've publicly said that, you know, in the, after, in the aftermath of the referendum, you know, that I accepted the result and I thought that the, the country should work with it. And I, I said that because um, I felt it was important that people who were engaging with me and in some cases using my research knew where I stood on the issue. And, 
since then, as we've discovered through more than a few studies, that puts me in about 9% of the academic community. Actually, sorry, 9% of social sciences and humanities. So, so even though on the one hand... Hang on, just to be uh, clear, isn't the, isn't the 9%, 9% who backed Brexit, not 9% who accepted the result? So 9% of, of people who would describe themselves as supporters of, of leave as an option, which, which I actually wouldn't even... I mean, I would say I... I certainly didn't campaign for Brexit. I didn't campaign to leave. But in the aftermath, I was more public than others in saying, I think we should respect the result. But, but let's not quibble about the defin definition. Let's say it's somewhere around one in 10, maybe one in eight, something like that. And that, that puts me in the clear minority. And it also comes alongside or sits uncomfortably alongside the fact that I also, for different reasons, I think happen to have a larger following than, than many. So I've sort of been trying to walk this tension between, you know, obviously having a, a different view of where we are than some of our colleagues, which is fine. Everybody has a different view, but also um, I think dealing with some difficulties on the part of some colleagues with the fact that they perhaps also might might see that profile and see that engagement as being problematic and, and, and in some cases, you know, uh, difficult. But, but Anand, you know, let me just say from my perspective, and, for, and because I sort of feel also a duty to speak for quite a significant number of academics who share my views but won't say so publicly, from our perspective, the last four years has been incredibly divisive. And we've seen professional associations, professional academic associations, grant body interviews, other sort of you know, quite important central features of academic life really come down quite strongly against that central premise that the vote should be respected and implemented and and that's been a very difficult place to to be in and um that's not to sort of um, pull out the victim card but it's to say that social media has amplified that and exacerbated that and so when you feel that you are perhaps in a in a you know in some cases i think i would i would actually draw a parallel to 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 bullying in some cases when you feel that you are you know, being discriminated against for that reason you know then you do dig your heels in and you do become more determined to say, well, you know, actually, this is my view on this issue. And yeah, I think that's, that's certainly, that's certainly taken place. Jonathan, what's your take on this? There's quite a lot to unpick there. I come from a slightly different place from Matt. I didn't, um, obviously, like Matt, uh, um, from, for the same reason, I didn't care you. I didn't campaign in the referendum, don't and haven't said which way I voted. Um, and uh, I don't have, don't take a stance on whether the vote was the right thing or whether Brexit is the right thing. But I do see it as my job to represent, you know, in a UK and a changing Europe context, part of my job is to synthesize and represent the consensus of the people who work in the fields that I work with, particularly economics and immigration. Um, and there's no doubt that there's a consensus in the economics community about the broad sign or direction or directional impact of Brexit, even if there's lots and lots of debate about the details of that. And I don't think that's driven by the political views um, or ideological views of the uh, the economics community. They probably, which way, you know, most, most academic economists probably did vote Remain. Where the causation is, you know, how the causation goes, I'm not sure. But there's no real doubt that if you ask economists from if you could get a sample of economists from Western Samoa, Argentina, and uh, um, Manitoba who knew Econ 101 and some trade economics, 
and ask them about the economics of a hypothetical country like the UK leaving a hypothetical construct like the EU, that they would tell you um, that this was going to have a significant negative impact. There's just no doubt about that. So, you know, you have to represent that without at the same time, um, and I don't, taking a view on the wider politics. Separately, I'm not entirely quite sure what Matt means by respect the results of the referendum here and, and what exactly he's asking academics or academia to do. I mean, I think we all absolutely have to, you know, there was a referendum, it had a result, there was a clear question, um, you know, whatever you think about the various allegations of interference, it was a referendum that was conducted in, in accordance with the constitutional requirements and the government governments have been pledged to implement it. I don't think that makes individual academics who are not in the position that Anand and I are in campaigning for a reversal of the, uh, you know, for parliament to override the referendum or a second referendum or any of that stuff. That's all perfectly legitimate, surely. Matt? My view is if you, if you take organizations like the UK and Exchange in Europe, for example, and I just use this as a, as a micro example, I think all of our academic associations and organizations, when we're going through something that's deeply polarizing and divisive, we have to try and speak to all sides of the debate, right? And I was a UK and Exchange in Europe fellow, and I know that the program has reflected you know, different sides of the Brexit debate. So this is, is by no means a criticism. But I found that to be... I think particularly in more recent years, I think to be more the exception than the norm. I, I think there have been a number of prominent cases, and I don't, I don't want to get into individual cases on this, John, but there have been prominent, in some cases, people who are leading academic associations that are supposed to represent the discipline that have made you know, very disparaging, overtly political remarks about people that happen to have voted in a particular way at the referendum. And that, to me, is problematic because when people are claiming to represent the discipline or indeed when they are trying to make a judgment on whether academics should you know, receive research grants or be published and so on, I think without question, without question over the last few years, there has been what, what would be called a, a sort of chilling effect uh, applied against people who are seen to be outside of the orthodoxy, outside of the, the general view that is, as you say, John, more prominent within, within academia than it might be in other parts of British society. And I think that has, that has actually come through into the public mindset. I think people out there are very aware of that. And I, I think that, is, again, is, is, is part of my broader concern about the direction of travel within within academia and i think in a way it's partly also reflected in our media too that how we respond to the 2016 environment i think has been one of the key questions and, and we haven't really answered that question particularly effectively to answer john's question directly about second referendum and so forth if, if academics want to campaign for those things then of course they're more than willing i won't sit here and list you know the various people who campaign as labor candidates sit on Liberal Democrat committee uh, meetings advise uh, various political uh, parties. You know, academics can do what they want at the end of the day, but but that goes two ways, and I think that's where there are people who feel a sense of hypocrisy that tends to run through our community, whereby those who are taking on highly political roles roles that aren't simply about saying this decision or this outcome should be respected, but actively involved within political parties, within political party structures, and meanwhile others who have simply said, 
perhaps actually a vote should be respected being you know pretty routinely marginalized as a consequence of that i think that is where people begin to question whether we do have genuine viewpoint diversity within within the social sciences i do think i mean i do think there's an interesting comparison with the scottish referendum and the absolute studied neutrality of scottish institutions during that campaign which contrasted with the tone during the brexit campaign it'll be interesting if we have another referendum in scotland to see if that that line holds but i mean just just sort of moving the, the widening the lens a little bit i mean one of the things you're both very good at is communicating beyond the academy. This is sort of where this discussion started, in a sense, with social media. And I just wondered whether you think academics have got better at that as a whole over the last few years, that one of the things what's been going on in our politics and our economics has meant is that more academics have tried harder to communicate. And whether you think we're doing enough, whether we could do more, how we could do more, whether the profession as a whole should actually spend more time and effort in communicating outside the walls of universities. Do you want to go first, Jonathan? I do, as I said before, and I think Matt, Matt on his the sort of positive um, half of his, his, his opening remark said, you know, I think this is one of the great things about social media is it allows us to communicate as academics um, in ways which we have not before to a wider audience um, and in particular, I, I think it, it's also one of the things where I think social media has been helpful for us is that, you know, it's not that um, we, we are on the whole communicating to the great British public because both Matt and I have quite large followings by the standards of academics, but um, tiny, tiny followings by the standards of, of anybody who anyone out there in the real world has actually heard of, right? We're not celebrities. But our followings do include the, what you might call the intermediary class, commentators, journalists, um, parliamentary researchers, people who work in think tanks, all of those people over, you know, we do have a very high penetration indeed in that subgroup. So it's not so much that people... You know, we tweet our papers and people read them. Um, it's that we tweet about uh, our research or about other people's research or about current debates. Um, that is read by people who then, uh, one way or another, do have a wider reach. So I think trying to think about how, to, um, how we leverage that um, in, as Matt said before, in a sort of constructive way, both to get across those uh, um, areas where there actually is uh, a degree of academic consensus, um, and those those areas where where there isn't, and you know, on on my side, the sort of economic side, I, I think this this is particularly challenging and particularly difficult to try and get over that view that well, economists just disagree about everything, um, and try and get to a more nuanced understanding of uh, well, economists actually agree about quite a lot in terms of what tools you use to uh, to examine issues. And actually, they also agree about a fair amount on, on how to think about certain policy issues. And then there are some areas where that there, there's quite a lively debate and disagreement. So how do you communicate that? So how do you communicate when there is a consensus, when there's not? What, uh, um, what should people out there who are not economists actually be thinking about when they think about economics? I don't know the answers to any of these, but I do think it's happened. there are huge opportunities here. Matt? Yeah, I agree. I think, uh, I think there's definitely an appetite and probably an appetite reflected in this podcast to perhaps reflect uh, 
you know, now that we've we've been using social media for, over, for you know around a decade or so as a community, probably a desire to reflect on what we've got wrong and what we've got right. And I I think one of the useful things that we could do as people relatively connected to the academic community and beyond is to is to try and encourage um, some of the better angels of our nature, if you like, to come out a little bit more often than than the sort of the darker voices and to try and, you know, de-escalate conflicts or, or arguments before before they you know merge into more personal into more personal disputes and i think Anna, and the other thing i would say is for people who who are established on social media one of the things that actually i think as a community we need to do a lot better at is promoting uh, the work of early career researchers who might not have that following and might not be as established and again one of the reasons for my concern and perhaps i'm trying to stay the glass is half full rather than the glass is half empty. But one of my one of my reasons for concern is that it's not only members of the public who see us falling out all the time. It's also early career researchers who may well be thinking to themselves, well, geez, is this what it's going to be like as I come into the academy and suddenly I'm going online and I'm just seeing professors shouting at each other about... Um, about you know the latest opinion poll or whatever and i do think you know for that for that reason too that there is a need just collectively for everybody to take a breath and just kind of you know step away from it too um i mean i have a little rule that unless i absolutely have to <clears throat> i don't use social media at weekends you know it's saturday and sundays are, are completely off and and something else that i think actually helps to de-escalate is to is to kind of present tweets and discussion on social media again as you would if you were in a real room with somebody and simply you know if i if i'm facing a lot of criticism for some particular reason or other actually engaging with that person as a person and simply little things like putting hello at the beginning of the tweets or best wishes or whatever actually helps to de-escalate conversations that can quickly spiral because it is you know it, it can be quite a potent platform at times, especially when you're in that sort of cycle and you feel as though, you know, you're, you're having to stand your ground. But that's where organizations like You Can Air Change in Europe and podcasts like this and, and yourself, Anna, I think play, play a really important role in trying to encourage some of those uh, better angels to come through. So I have to yes. say, Matt. I mean, just well. I mean, listening to that. I mean, just imagine how unmitigatedly boring social media would be if everyone was polite and consensual the whole time. At the end of the day, it's the fights that attract attention, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I yes, want to disagree with people, of course, but uh, we need to keep it. We need to keep it civil. I think that's right, and I think you know, you, you you need to have a bit of both. And I think you you cannot resolve all academic questions on Twitter. And I think. What there definitely often is, is a case for saying, look, this subject is just too complicated. Too many people are piling in on this thread with too many different you know, questions or perspectives or arguments. Um, we're not going to sort it out here. I'm checking out. But I do, you know, we, you know, I think a good Twitter fight that isn't abusive, but that actually it can be confrontational, um, can be a good thing. And that, I think, complements things like you know, you know, podcasts or things like this, where we are discussing a subject, we are talking around a subject in some depth um, and coming in it from various different angles. We couldn't do this on Twitter, obviously, um, but that, uh, and, and we shouldn't try. And I think it's absolutely fine for us to, to do this here at the same time as occasionally 
picking on one or two points and having a go at each other on Twitter about uh, trying to, you know, in, in, you know, without being abusive or personal. Th- th- those different styles can be complementary rather than trying to make them all the same thing. Though, though I am slightly racking my brains to think of an example of you checking out of a Twitter fight, Jonathan, but... Uh... <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I don't usually check out of fights, but I do, check out, I do occasionally check out of discussions you know, on the grounds of saying, look, this is all very interesting. In fact, it's too interesting. There's just too much here. You know, uh, uh, we're not going to, uh, we're not, we're, we're, at this point, we are generating more heat than light because it's just too complicated. I know we're wrapping up, and just one thing to say that I do also w- wonder about um, what's the lasting impact of the stuff that we do on Twitter, that, you know, we're spending so much of our time debating and arguing. As John says, it can, it can serve a useful function in providing scrutiny and transparency and getting people to think differently about their research questions and their methods and so on and so forth. There's also a question that kind of rings in my mind, you know, once or twice a week, which is why am I spending so much of my life on this platform? (laughs) Maybe I should just be writing that book that I need to finish. And there's an element to this where, you know, I think who knows where we'll be 10 years from now, but I suspect we won't be spending you know, an hour or two a day, maybe. I don't know how, how long people spend on spend on it, but probably if I were to rack up the amount of time I do, it's probably quite a good chunk of each day. Uh, maybe we won't be using it at all. Well, you've answered your own question, surely. We're on it so much because there are more important things that ought to be done, but we can't quite be able to get around to <laughs> That's certainly the true. I mean, you've both been appallingly polite, I have to say, uh, and you've set yourself some very high bars for future Twitter interactions as well, which will be fun. Uh, but I just wanted to end by saying thank you. I thought that was really, really interesting, actually, and a fantastic way to kick off this new academic year. I very much look forward to having you both on again at some point, which I'm sure we will do. But for the moment, thanks so much for your time and enjoy the last few days of your summer. 